Being a whistleblower is a difficult calling. It takes courage and a willingness to tell the truth when powerful systems would rather keep things under wraps. And that's especially true in the church world where whistleblowers and victims are often silenced. Reverend Beth Caulfield has written a new book outlining her experience in the United Methodist appointment system, exposing some of the problems in the system around appointments and the treatment of women in ministry. The book is titled, People Throw Rocks at Things That Shine, A Clergy Whistleblower's Journey. And Beth is my guest today on Holy Conversations. Hello again, everyone. My name is Bob Kaler. I'm host here of Holy Conversations. Glad you've joined us. My friend Beth Caulfield formerly served in the Greater New Jersey Annual Conference of the United Methodist Church, but is now an ordained elder in the Global Methodist Church and president of the Greater New Jersey chapter of the Wesleyan Covenant Association. Welcome, Beth. Thank you, Bob. It's great to be here, as always, especially with you, my friend. Yeah. A little envious of what you get to do here. It looks like you get to have a lot of fun. We get to have some interesting conversations, holy conversations. And today we're talking about some stuff that's not so holy that took place. Tell me about the genesis of this book. What made you sit down and write it? Yeah, well, uh, it's a great question. I mean, first, you know, many of us pastors feel like we have a book in us, right, and and, and have been writers. Uh, I never thought that this would be the one that I would start out with, um, but uh, it is. And as I look back, I can see the Lord having clearly prepared me uh, to write it. Um, when I look, um, you know, some of the earliest notes that I took that went into the book were taken over 10 years ago, um, snippets from dreams uh, and uh, memories of ministry, um, good ministry, good good experiences, uh, both that I wrote down and kept in photographs and, and emails that were special to me. And then during my time, especially on the Greater New Jersey um, conference staff, I began realizing things were maybe not quite right or a little strange. And so I started keeping notes, and I think um, I never realized that they were going to go into a book, um, but they did. And and the way that happened is in the spring of 2021, uh, when I left my clergy position with the UMC, I decided to put together an interview uh, uh, for other traditionalists, particularly in the WCA, to talk about what had happened. And I actually, I had uh, worked, found a videographer and had asked Crystal Gold, who is now the WCA leader of, for Eastern PA, to conduct the interview of me. And we chose a church in Penn, Delaware uh, to film and everything. So we were all set to do this. And we were planning the interview for 30 minutes. Uh, but when I started writing down questions and writing down uh, what I wanted to say, I realized that this was going to take a lot longer than 30 minutes and that I had a book. So we canceled the interview and I started writing in May and published the following May. So- and I began, um, as I began to realize the bigger picture of the story, I realized that I wasn't writing just for myself but for so many others who've either been through similar um, situations or treatment. Um, I was writing for uh, particularly laity who have no clue of what the, surgery, of the clergy system is like and for the sake of the church so that it could shine brighter as some of these things get exposed. And as I mentioned in the book, I, I know 
too many gifted leaders that don't come into the UMC who stay away from it um, because of some of the problems that I have uh, uh, talked about in the book. And so uh, I wrote about it to expose those problems, to offer some solutions of ways that they could be fixed. And these are ideas that I hope um, will see their way into both the global Methodist church and whatever remains of the United Methodist church. So you and I have been friends for a while. And as I read this book, I think I said to you earlier, I wish I had known all this was going on. I mean, I had no idea that the extent of what was happening, but it also struck me that it, it seems impossible that someone with such obvious gifts for ministry and amazing experience and fruitfulness in ministry would not eventually be ordained in the United Methodist Church. So give our listeners a brief summary of what brought you to this point. In short, what the heck happened? Yeah. Yeah, well, uh, again, thank, thank you for your comments. And, and it's kind and it's humbling. Um, honestly, I think it was kind of a, a nexus of a perfect storm, if you will. Um, the, one of it was certainly the problem of the theological wars that are going on within the United Methodist Church and going through them as a traditional Methodist in a conference whose progressive leaders have frankly become hostile to us um, that's certainly part of the story, but it's only one part of it. Um, I had a high-profile ministry um, being on the bishop's staff, and it was flourishing, and it was receiving open appreciation. And unfortunately, that garnered resentment even among those in the highest of positions in the conference. Um, and I also got caught up in and became political fallout over a, a vicious attack designed to destroy someone's candidacy for bishop. Um, and that candidate happened to be my best friend. So um, those things, plus being a, a woman minister who's traditional in her beliefs, but maybe a little more progressive or in um, my ministry gifts, uh, when I say in doing progressive ministry, not theology, um, um, I, I think um, those things with the, the kind of personality that I have and a, a work ethic that gets excited about what's going on, that stirs up people and, um, and not only progressives, um, but can even stir up less secure leaders and especially those who, who don't really follow Wesleyan theology regarding women. Um, but uh, Another way to look at it is that my story uh, fits along with a, a, an institution that has gone astray, right? One that has said big tent accommodation of many theologies is important and has allowed um, kind of wolves get in along, um, among the sheep um, and therefore power abuse. Uh, and uh, a, a place where people can navigate the book of discipline as a legal document to find loopholes through and to blatantly undermine it. And I know I'm using some strong language here, Bob, <laughs> um, but I, I got to do it. Um, you know, I, I think we're at that, at that point. Um, you know, the UMC institution has become a system that rewards yes men and women and and sucks resources to those on the top um, away from those on the bottom uh, who are doing the real street work. Um, and that's institutionalism. And uh, those kind of problems 
um, are out there and are part of my story. But but also, you know, I, I and maybe I should have said this first. Um, what happened and what my story is about is also about me growing as a leader. Right. I mean, um, making mistakes and learning from mistakes. And I've certainly made my share of them. Um, and uh, but standing even when people say to lay down and what happens with that and taking hits for it and um, learning how to deal with that for a greater cause. And and that's all part of my story as well. Um, I look back and I think at times I was naive and gullible um, because of my hope uh, that, um, you know, I really thought that at some point justice would come through the process in the denomination. And uh, um, when I look back, uh, even though it cost me, um, I know that I did what was right and I can sleep. So um, I'll never regret standing for truth and working with underdogs and continuing as an underdog. And um, though I've been shaken uh, a number of times, my faith has actually grown through all this. And I hope that that is part of the story that people read in the book. There's a lot in this book. And one of the things you talk about a lot is the failure of leadership in the United Methodist process you went through, that it becomes more of a bureaucratic process that it becomes a leadership process. And you talk particularly about the problem of narcissism. And as I was reading this, one of the things that stood out to me, I just a few months ago finished the Rise and Fall of Mars Hill podcast that Christianity Today put out about the whole Mark Driscoll, uh, Mars Hill church uh, process. And I found that to be a fascinating podcast. I highly recommend it to people if they've not had a chance to listen to it because it it talks about when narcissism enters the church and particularly church leadership. And it causes all kinds of wreckage for people who are close to those leaders. And it reverberates out within the larger church. And particularly when we're talking about the United Methodist system, which is connectional as opposed to Mars Hill, which was an independent church, we see kind of a, a systemic kind of narcissism at work at the highest levels of leadership, not everywhere, but in a lot of places, in not just the UMC, but in a lot of a lot of Christian denominations. So, how do you see narcissism at work in the in the United Methodist system, particularly in the episcopacy and the appointment system, and in even in cabinets and boards and so forth? Yeah, yeah. No, thank you. I, I really appreciate this um, question, and and I'm glad you brought up the the Christianity Today podcast. I think Mike Cosper, who's the one who did that on Mars Hill, uh, I think he did a great job. Uh, and I actually uh, had finished the first draft of the book when I began listening to him uh, about Mars Hill, and I realized that we were hitting on some similar issues and and that was helpful and reassuring to me that I as I had kind of jumped out there um, and um, as you said it's about how narcissism feeds and shapes systems that become destructive to kingdom building right and to God's people ultimately and the Mars Hill story is just one of so many about independent mega church leaders but um, you're exactly right um, people have not been 
um, taking that same lens so much yet to what's going on in denominate in denominations, which are even larger and uh, even have more power. Um, so as far as what I saw and see is uh, the problem of narcissism, I first I, I think we need to, um, without getting too much into psychology or, or sociology, see that narcissism is a growing problem in society in general. And, right. I, uh, I and think there's a, a result. Yeah, the, we, yeah. We have this sort of expressive individualism now that dominates the landscape. Um, I've been reading a lot of exactly. Carl, Carl Truman's work around that. So everybody kind of creates their own reality and we, we put ourselves at center stage all the time. So it's not just a systemic problem. It is a social problem that we have. It's a social problem. Cultural and, problem. And, and, and yeah. it's both, I, I agree, that individualism in society and then also uh, just brokenness in family relationships um, causes, especially, you know, when you, you go back in young children, um, these kinds of issues to start surfacing. So I think it's both. Um, Christianity is supposed to offer Christ healing for problems like this, right? And I think narcissism needs to be talked about more and more resources and training devoted to treating and controlling it in general um, and, and talking about the, the, the national problem that we have even. But second, I think we need to recognize the attraction of ministerial leadership positions to narcissists and how being in the pulpit can cause anyone to struggle with it. I mean, you know, think about it. Anyone who wants to get up in front of people and tell them with authority how to live their lives has to be susceptible to this tendency, you know? I mean, it's, it's, it's like a setup for it. And, um, and, and all that goes along with being a, a leader with so much power, if you will. And we need to do a better job of looking out for it among those that we choose as leaders and helping and holding one another accountable for not succumbing to its great attraction and problems, which include and ultimately uh, end up with abuse of power. And, um, you know, certainly there's a, a lack of accountability and even a fostering of narcissists when there are rarely repercussions for abuses of power among our denominational leaders, especially bishops, right? I believe adhering to accountable discipleship models, and you know a lot about like that, Bob, um, like Wesleyan bands is just one way to start. And I think Episcopal committees and, and boards of ordained ministry should have resources and be trained uh, on identifying and helping people with this. Um, so, yeah, I'm, I'm glad you asked about narcissism. Yeah, I think it's a, it's a huge issue. And, and I think it's becoming more and more out there for people to see. And it, it, it becomes an endemic to the system. As you said, I think there is a, a tendency when we, because we are kind of platformed as clergy. Yeah. Even if we're in a small church, people look to us, and it's easy to kind of say, "I, uh, you know, the straw that stirs the drink, so to speak." Right. <laughs> to borrow from right. uh, Reggie Jackson, I think it was. Um, you know, we we all run into that problem, and I think it's also part of our sinful nature too. We want to, mm -hmm. we want to be 
uh, our own our own gods, so to speak. And um, we used to say in the army that when someone made 04, when they made major, you know, they took them in a back room and lobotomized them and took the common sense part out of their brain. And, you know, they, they, they failed to be a good tactical leader anymore. Then it was about the career more and more. So, yeah. uh, and, and we always have to guard against that in a system that rewards elevating through the system. And so we, you know, we, we've talked a lot about this kind of stuff and you and I served together on the next steps working group for the WCA way back in 2018 seems yeah. like 50 years ago we started this process yeah <laughs> and and we worked with herb herb ormond who is a wonderful uh lay leader the three of us formed the uh the task force on clergy deployment which yeah. received a lot of interesting feedback over the course of time and we'll continue to receive that until we have a convening conference for the global methodist church but one of the things that we talked about when we started that process, and I remember this conversation vividly, we said, we want to start with a blank slate because the, the United Methodist support, the United Methodist appointment system is broken. Yeah. So what are some of the issues you experienced with it? Because as I read the book, that jumped out at me. There's a lot of failure in the appointment system because of the failure of the bureaucracy, the failure of leadership. How can these be corrected First of all, what's broken and how do we fix it? Sure, sure. No, again, yeah, thanks. So, so, so through my own experience, uh, both with what happened in my own appointments and then what I saw happening around me, uh, was that our, um, our UMC appointment system had issues and still has issues on, on how it's being administered, not utilizing the process that is laid out in the Book of Discipline, um, it can be used punitively and also to reward inappropriately. And it has other problems of subjectivity that come into play when the only decision makers in the process are a bishop and cabinet who are either abusing their power and or are incompetent in their decision making and or in their execution of the process. And um, again, my personal experience demonstrates that. So while I was serving on the bishop's staff, I experienced wrath because of my association with someone who the bishop didn't like and wanted to squash and, and because of other reasons I've already mentioned. And so um, I was um, uh, reappointed. And so without proper consultation with one of our largest churches in the conference, um, the first, their associate pastor, who was serving in a critical role at the time, was contacted. First one they contacted, not SPRC, not the senior uh, past, pastor, but he was actually received a phone call while he and his family were at Disney. No clue that he was going to be appointed elsewhere. Uh, and receive this information. He was the first person to then let the senior pastor know about it. Uh, and this was a church where um, both the senior pastor and the associate pastor had been there a very long time. And uh, a lot of uh, uh, um, plans, right? So out of the blue, this happens. Now, this directly violates discipline, right? Paragraph 426 talks about proper consultation. None of that happened, right? So the, the church 
was told that they were losing him. And uh, the next week they were told they were getting me and uh, they had no recourse to that. And it caused a lot of resentment as they all felt their ministries were undermined. And uh, mine was undermined as well as a result. And um, what happened to me is not an isolated case. Here in greater New Jersey, uh, it made a lot of headlines just a year ago when the senior pastor of our largest church, Reverend James Lee, um, same thing happened. Uh, he was, he had just joined his church, by the way, had just joined the WCA. And um, uh, he was told that he was going to be appointed to a, a, a different church um, um, without consultation at all with the, with the church that he was at. Um, and you and I know that it happens elsewhere. So um, although what happened clearly violates the, the book of discipline, both clergy and churches involved effectively had no recourse to what happened. And I think that's the other important thing to understand. Even if we'd filed charges, right? Even if we win, and that's a big if, given the way the, the, the players involved control the legal and trial process that, that's going to be long and expensive in many ways, including to mental health, right? But even if we win, the reality of the potential for retaliation against us within the system that accommodates the abuse of power also has to be dealt with. And the stakes for that are very high. Careers are destroyed and, and you can be sent to the appointment of your nightmare, right? So in essence, you have no recourse when the itineracy system is solely in the hands of power abusers and or incompetent cabinets. And an appointment process that better includes church and clergy involvement and buy-in to the selection process can help prevent such problems. And that's what you and I worked on uh, with Herb. And that is also, um, you know, what we saw is you need all parties involved to, to serve as checks and balances um, uh, to the process. And again, that being an appointment process. Um, we recommended a system for doing that, that also we talked a lot about ensuring that females and minorities receive fair opportunity uh, for um, when they go into the GMC. And uh, a version of what we had worked on is now in that draft book of doctrines and disciplines. And I look forward to our coming general conference in the GMC where those processes can be flushed out more. And, um, you know, we also need uh, a discipline that better holds bishops and their cabinets accountable for following the process. Um, and in the book, I describe my recommendations for that, including holding bishops to term limits and reimagining their roles and responsibilities and an effective judicial process and complaint system that ensures bishops can be removed for their abuses of power when found guilty by trial, which we don't have that in the UMC right now. Um, systems with those values, though, are included in the GMC draft doctrines and disciplines. So um, I, um, I'm, I'm excited about that. Um, I also think that we need to look at how the current UMC itineracy system 
has become burdensome to churches and clergy families in ways that are that are hurting both their ministries, um, hurting them financially, and and again ultimately emotionally. Um, you know, for instance, Bob, my very first appointment out of seminary, I was the fifth pastor in nine years to the little church that I was sent to, right? And it was a church that had been an original Asbury Circular church, okay? It had a lot of history, a lot of great stuff to it. Um, I stayed there for one year, and actually, I was there only six months when their SPRC was told that I was going to be appointed to the bishop staff. So, in that church's experience, there was one pastor who served after me, and then the church closed. Is that any surprise? Mm. You know, um, so I, I think those kind of things need to be addressed and really looked at. I mean, in today's world of two career families and again, mental health concerns in general that, of course, get strained when children and even parents get uprooted. Um, the financial cost to all involved in moves and, and more. I'm, I'm not even talking about the problems, you know, with parsonages and, um, and that are often more headache, headaches than they are help for anyone. It's evident that the system of moving pastors so frequently is problematic. Yeah, and we see over and over again the the – studies that tell us that longer term pastorates are, are usually more fruitful and more helpful because in my work on clergy transitions, I, I discovered that you really don't get started until about year five. Yeah. After you've discovered yeah. where all the skeletons are and you've stepped on the landmines and you've, you've learned some things. So longer term pastorates tend to be more, more fruitful and, and moves should be rare rather than, just because we have to move. I mean, I get it in our system, people retire and then there's a sure. musical chairs that takes place every year. I always imagine cabinets kind of being like in the NFL draft room, you know, and I, I've talked to several district superintendents to say it kind of looks like that, you know, where you're going to put everybody and, and, and the system can work. I mean, the appointment system can work. It It's worked in, for me in most cases, I've been matched with churches that, that fit my gifts um, I'm in my current appointment 13 years. Um, so I think there's there's obviously some connectivity that Wesley had in the midst of that, some some genius in the midst of it, but also we haven't adapted that system to the way things work in the 21st century world, and we really have to take a look at that. Yeah, and 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 that's it. I mean, uh, just revisiting that and and we have some recommendations already for the global Methodist church that are, that are to put more stability in and uh, better account again for the needs of the local church and for the pastor. Uh, and, uh, and I also, um, you know, um, I, I think as, as time goes on, um, you know, that should continue to be revisited. And, and I think we're becoming more astute at it. And hopefully some of the stories I tell in the book help with that. Yeah, the, the point is not you have a choice between a call system and a strict appointment system. There's something in between. And we started to get at that. And I think as the Global Methodist Church works on that toward the convening conference and even at the convening conference, 
we'll find that happy medium. And, and if not, we'll tweak it as we go down, as we go down the line. So we talked a lot about appointments. We also, in this book, read a lot about the role of women in ministry. We talked about this on a previous podcast with you and Nako Kellum from Florida. But given what you've been through, what, what kind of advice or caution can you give to those who are moving into the global Methodist church, particularly those who are women? And one of the things we hear all the time from many of our United Methodist colleagues is, oh, the global Methodist church is not going to be friendly to women in ministry what have you experienced in the WCA and GMC in their approach to women in ordained yeah. ministry? Yeah, no, no, thank you. Um, yeah, so so first I have to say I have definitely seen a dedicated and intentional approach to attracting women in the GMC from the very beginning, right? When you look at the leadership council from the beginning uh, and, and through now, you see strong female leaders in significant positions, both clergy and laity, whether it's pres- as presiding officers like Carolyn Moore, who serves as chair of the WCA Global Council, or Leah Hyde Gregory and others who serve on the transitional leadership team for the Global Methodist Church, or um, women who've led various task teams, such as Angela Pleasance. And there are female WCA chapter leaders like myself and more. It's clear that women are not only welcomed, but sought after um, by our leadership. And that has encouraged and attracted me all along. Um, And I hope that can encourage other women whose theological beliefs are firmly Wesleyan and biblical and and understand the prominent place for female leadership. It's, It's something that's called for, right? Um, And I dedicated an entire chapter of my book to what supports um, those beliefs. And and that chapter, by the way, which is called She Preaches Gospel, has actually been one of the most commented on to me sections of the book. Um, People haven't really, uh, people who have never really understood how can you be traditional but not have uh, more uh, of these uh, combat uh, d- views that are uh, conservative and, and sound more Baptist or, or other Calvinist views. Um, people have really um, uh, appreciated that part. Um, and I'd also point out that Carolyn Moore has a book coming out in the fall. I think it's called uh, When Women Lead. Um, and I believe um, that it's going, it has a lot of encouragement and instruction for women and men about female leadership. And I'm looking forward to that. But at the same time, um, I would emphasize that struggles for women everywhere continue um, and have not all been resolved and shouldn't be ignored by women or men. And um, there's still plenty who call themselves Wesleyan, we have to be honest, both within and outside the United Methodist Church ranks, including in church leadership, who accommodate or even adhere to practices and theologies that are not friendly to female leaders. And at at a minimum, they don't advocate for us. And at the worst, they undermine our ministries. And it's not telling tales out of school that some of these people have interest in joining the GMC. 
And therefore, it's important that we not fall asleep at the wheel for in contending for women and other minorities. And as you know, um, you and I worked on, on um, this issue in the Next Step Working group uh, as we worked on uh, something called the Office for Just Ministries and um, for the Global Methodist Church. And a version that looks really close to what we originally drafted is now in the Book of Doctrines and Disciplines that's to be approved. And it's important to know that the Global Methodist Church is serious about the role of this office. And I'd encourage people to take a look at it. And it's important that we remain um, uh, committed to it, including in how we administer the appointment process. And I also think part of accountable discipleship for female leaders in particular is to be part of a Wesleyan band and praying together and discussing our unique concerns in a healthy way is important. Um, Holy Spirit-led ideas for further advocacy and support can be born out of those kinds of bands. So, um, you know, your question was, what would you encourage? Um, I, I, I encourage women to join the Global Methodist Church and to join a band. I just had my band meeting this morning before we jumped on. Yeah. So it's not just women, but men and yeah. and youth and everyone else who can absolutely get in, involved in that. That's a big part of who we want to be. As I w- finished the book and I was thinking, man, this is a uh, kind of a drop the mic or uh, push the bomb into the middle of the room kind of book. What kind of feedback have you gotten? Yeah, so... Um well, you know, I expected to um, have some challenges. <laughs> that's <laughs> and, a wonderful and, way to put you know, it. That's that's part of being a whistleblower, and um, and I and I thank um, so many people who encouraged me and and helped me to really listen. Is this God? What God is telling me to do or not? Um, uh, but I have to say, the greatest feedback I have gotten has all been positive. Um, it has been folks saying, yeah, I, 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 I've experienced similar things. Um, yeah, I, I saw what happened to you. Yeah, um, you know, or wow, I had no idea, but it makes sense. Um, people um, that I didn't expect or even knew what was going on, including progressive leaders and members of a Board of Ordained Ministry and so forth. Um, have I gotten some negative feedback? Um, from people that I expected to get it from, people who um, I name in the book or, or share their actions. So um, none of that surprised me. But uh, again, um, I, I've been encouraged uh, just by um, the fact that the book seems to be doing what um, I had hoped for, which is opening eyes and starting conversations. So you are now one of the first to be ordained in the Global Methodist Church. How does that feel after all you've been through? Well, you know, when I first found out, I was um, standing in uh, Chicago O'Hare Airport about to board a plane. And, um, and I, I, I have to be honest, I went numb for a moment. 
I mean, I, I think maybe maybe it was just so many different feelings kind of like hit me on overload. And um, and I couldn't exactly grasp everything I was feeling. I mean, there was relief and and the sense of resolve and completion and justification and um, and joy, just just pure joy. Uh, and then I finally teared up and I said, OK, Lord, well, what's next? <laughs> and 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 I'm currently uh, in the discernment process for more clarity on that. Awesome. The book is titled People Throw Rocks at Things That Shine, A Clergy Whistleblower's Journey. Reverend Beth, Beth Caulfield is the author. I assume people can get this everywhere fine books are sold. Exactly. And the publisher is Vashti Books. You can also look it up at peoplethrowrocks.com and make sure you get your copy and read this and share it widely. It's a, it's a marvelous but also disturbing read on, on many levels. So Beth, I want to thank you for joining me and uh, I want to thank you all for joining me on the podcast. Again, if you have questions about the podcast, please send us your questions to podcast at wesleyancovenant.org. You can also follow us on Twitter at WCA pod to find out more about the Wesleyan Covenant Association, go to wesleyancovenant.org and for the Global Methodist Church, globalmethodist.org. Thanks for joining me. We'll see you next time here on Holy Conversations, the podcast of the Wesleyan Covenant Association. And Baba, I want to thank you again for helping me share my story. Thank you. 